I wanted to talk about the fact that it's 2002, and this is the first time we're meeting um, in 2002, and people make New Year's resolutions, and um, this isn't for everybody a new year, by the way. Uh, it's the new year on the um, shared world calendar, so that airline tickets operate on this calendar year, but it's not the Muslim calendar, and it's not the Hebrew calendar, um, not the Chinese calendar, not the Tibetan calendar. It's just a calendar. Somebody, uh, actually the email that I got this morning ended itself with a, uh, may this coming civil new year be more civil than the last. Um, <laughs> So really, that's what I wanted to talk about, about uh, a, a recommitment to um, courageous, nonviolent activism. I don't know what else is going to do it. Um, a little bit, we talked last week about movies and uh, about uh, uh, that sometime soon we would... Uh, talk about Lord of the Rings. And, um, sometimes soon we will talk about Lord of the Rings. T today, not so much, except that uh, I came away from thinking about that. Uh, my husband was surprised that I liked it. He said, I'm surprised that you liked it so much. It has a lot of tremendous violent scenes. And, that I'm surprised you liked it that much. And I thought none of the violence in that movie was gratuitous, and I, it was so clearly mythic that it didn't feel like it was real people. It's mythic. And I thought in some way it um, really portrayed how enormous the struggle to overcome um, unkind tendencies is, the, the struggle in one's own heart for the good to triumph is a lifelong monumental struggle. Think about it not so much, maybe, uh, I think about evil in the world. Uh, and talk about, well, we'll have to combat the forces of evil in the world. But I think surely it has to start with recognizing the tendencies in our own heart and really making a commitment to recognize them so that in how we contribute to the world we do that from a place of clarity and don't add to the confusion of the world. And do it really out of a conviction that that impulse or that compulsion to do something self-serving rather than something benevolent can really be overcome. I thought I would read you a quote and you tell me who said this. What? <laughs> the use of violence breeds terror. See the nation embroiled in strife. How this has moved my heart. How I was stirred, I shall now tell. Seeing the crowds in frantic movement like swarms of fish when the pond drives up. Seeing how people fight each other by fear and horror, I was struck. Who said it? Yes. 
It could have been Gandhi and it could have been Martin Luther King. could have been Abraham Joshua Heschel, whose um, death anniversary is today, 28 years today. And uh, not only could it have been the Buddha, it was. Uh, it, it was the Buddha. That was the Buddha. 28,500 years ago. Abraham Joshua Heschel was um, a rabbi, born in Europe, uh, came to this country, taught many years, uh, graduate of Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, taught many years at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, was one of the people that you see in the front line of uh, pictures of Martin Luther King walking from Selma to... Uh, um, Montgomery, uh, linked the arms on one side with uh, William Sloan Coffey on the other side with Abraham Heschel, whose uh, remark on the after that day, I felt I was praying with my feet, has become a really uh, often quoted remark in terms of the need to somehow uh, move together uh, our sense of the magic of being in a life and our gratitude for the magic of being in a life with some action that that converts the whole world to an experience of gratitude about being in a life. That really makes the suffering of life just the suffering of being in a body, getting old, or not getting old and dying. They're the sufferings that being in a life are heir to. It's not possible to be in a life and not get feeble or old or sick, even when you're not old. It's not possible to be in a life and not die and be parted from everybody that you love and they with everybody and they with you. But there are all the extra gratuitous pain and suffering in the world that are the reflection of greed and hatred and delusion in the world <coughs> that could change. <coughs> Not so much that greed and hatred and delusion or greed and hatred as impulses will go away, but that what we'll be able to do more is recognize them as part of the impulses that are part of being a human being and also recognize the fact that out of awareness of the suffering that being asleep to those impulses causes, we could wake up to them and not do them and make a different world. We could convert ourselves to kindness of a radical conversion. I think the Buddha was a tremendous peace advocate. I don't think he was the first of the peace advocates. One of the very great peace advocates of the world. I don't know who would qualify as the first. Maybe there's a great religious figure from earlier. I think this is, I don't know what, what year was Hosea. 
And I will make for you a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, so that all living creatures may lie down without fear. Do you know when Hosea was? Time of the Buddha? <coughs> 500 years before the Common Era? Isaiah about that time as well? Yeah. Maybe every once in a while, every couple of... I, I, I once read someone who said, every 500 years the world shakes itself and says, wait a minute, not doing this right. There is another way to do this. Um, huh? This may be it. You know, one of the things that I thought so much about after uh, 9-11, I wonder if there will ever be a time that we'll be here or I'll be anywhere that we won't talk about that day. I don't think that the, 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 the pain of the world began on that day, for sure. But it was one of those days where the whole world collectively got shaken. Um, and I, and I, I think... Uh, I hope that the best thing that happened is we got shaken awake a little bit. Say, listen, we can't, we can't fall asleep to the fact of the pain of the world and the fact that it has to be met in some radical new way. And I think that the radical new way isn't that radical, or isn't that new. It'll be radical still because it's counterintuitive. We're going to have to make friends with everybody in the world and to manage to uh, hold them in our heart. The Metta Sutta says, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. Right after 9-11, there was a um, memorial service in San Francisco and uh, clergy from nine different religious traditions spoke. I heard on the radio. I was listening, I was driving somewhere and I was listening on the radio and I, I drove off the highway and drove into a parking lot so I could take notes on what people were saying because they were wonderful. And everybody said something from their religious tradition and something apropos to the situation. And uh, Alan Jones, who's the dean of Grace Cathedral, said, this is what I'd like you to do. He said, I'd like you this, uh, this weekend to go to church. He said, but don't go to your church. Go to somebody else's. If you're a Christian, go to a synagogue or go to a mosque. If you're a Muslim, go to a church or go to a synagogue. Go someplace else, in somebody else's place, and be with them and pray with them. And that was a wonderful image. And we somehow have to go places together. We can't to be a new image. <clears throat> Before I went to sleep last night, I'm never going to get up to how I prepared because I listened to the I looked the email just before I went to bed, and I looked just when I before I left this morning. The email I got before I left last night was called a ray of hope. 5,000 people, mostly dressed in black, which is why I chose what I wore today, turned up for a peace march 
in Jerusalem yesterday. 5,000 people showed up, walked uh, single file uh, or two by two. They had, they had planned to, but by uh, 10.30 in the morning, there was no hope of containing the vast crowd, so they just walked. 5,000 people, march of mourning for all the victims, Palestinian and Israeli, of the occupation. Responding to a call of the Coalition of Women for a Just Peace, people from all over the world found their way to Vigil Plaza today. When the signal came to begin, we were all mixed up with each other, Israeli, Palestinian, European, American, and began a slow, solemn walk in silence, mostly, with only a funereal cadence sounded by two women drummers in the center of this long procession. Although there was a small counter-demonstration, 30 people shouting angrily on the sidelines, it only served to dramatize the power of our undignified presence. We led with the huge banner, the occupation is killing us all. Then it went on to talk about it was a beautiful day. Crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger. Past the stage, participants could see, by the time we had arrived at the plaza, the spillover was spillover inside the gate and along the roads leading up to it. Past the stage, participants could see as backdrop beautiful citadel rising from the walls of the old city, the Valley of Gethsemane spread out below. The entire program was moderated in Hebrew and Arabic by Dalit Baum and Camila Bader Arif, co-MCs. And then all the people who were there, all peace activists, Palestinians, Israelis, people from Europe, people from the European Parliament. Speeches were eloquent and inspiring. The woman who wrote this said, I was most inspired by 13 Israeli organizations who have shown extraordinary commitment to activism. And they each lit a torch to the killed, the wounded, the homes destroyed, the trees uprooted, the children whose lives are fractured, as well as the efforts of those who refuse to give up to the despair. They keep on struggling to transform this nightmare into a vision of peace and partnership. They have the names of the organizations. And people sang. The television and the radio had relatively no coverage of it, um, which is true everywhere. But I, th- I, I, I was very moved by it because I think um, I, I have such a sense that at some point, and maybe we're coming to that point, it, it becomes so clear that there is no alternative but getting over the what really is the impulse of the heart to respond with revenge, to continue the grudge. There was a um, section in the New York Times talk a little bit about what the Buddha taught about the 
factors that confuse the mind, the hindrances that confuse the mind. It's a very big problem to be in a human body that responds uh, on a visceral level when it's frightened. We have the possibility of responding on a heart level when we are overwhelmed by how amazing it is to be in a life really caring. And uh, the possibility of tremendous destructive response. Did anybody see the New York Times on Sunday? They had a, a picture section. Pictures of the whole year, the memorable pictures of the whole year. So I won't show you the picture on the cover of this. It's, you, know, you can imagine that it's a picture of the planes hitting the Twin Towers and just you know, see debris spraying. And there's a lot of pictures of people fleeing from there. There's a picture in the middle of... Um, here it is. Time for prayer. Near the northern Afghan battlefront, an American bombing attack on, nearby, on nearby Taliban positions is going on in the background. So you can see that there's white streaks in the sky from airplanes going by. And the person praying in the middle. You don't know who he is. You don't know what side he's on. But the impulse to prayer, for whatever, for the sense of awareness that I'm not in control, the sense of awareness that I can't do anything about this, maybe even a sense of, of such trust that there must be a way bigger than what I see right in front of me, that there's something left to pray to. I think we have the impulse to pray. The, the thing that struck me, though, is on the very next page from that impulse to pray are three pictures that are quite terrible. If you want it, I'll pass it around, but you don't have to look at it. This is uh, three pictures called No Mercy. And it says, Northern Alliance fighters on the way to Kabul, the Afghan capital, in November, found one of the Taliban enemy in a ditch and killed him despite his pleas. You see him here. The man was shot in the chest as well as beaten with a rifle butt and a grenade launcher. I'm sorry to read that to you. It's terrible to hear, isn't it? But the reason I read it to you and the reason why... I'll, I'll pass it. You don't have to look at it if you don't want to. Uh, is, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, the kind of mind state that, or is it hard to imagine, the kind of mind state that would be so frenzied that um, a single unarmed person pleading for their life would get shot anyway and beaten by a rifle butt and hit by a grenade launcher. What would be the, the feeling in a person's heart that would do that? Can you imagine? It, it, it seems so painful to me. Doesn't that seem... We'd have to be in such extreme pain. You know, the, the, one of the lines from the Buddha is that anger is a poison. 
in the vein. It's a toxin in the vein. It's so painful to be filled with that. So as having started off with such a seriously terrible example, well, I, I want to say that I don't. I, I, the most frequently asked question in meditation classes is, "How do I get over my anger? I still get angry." Who here still gets angry? You have not gotten rid of all the anger. It, it says in some of the early Buddhist scriptures that if you practice enough, you can pluck out the defilements of the heart. Anger and greed will not arise again. I don't know anybody for whom that's true. I don't, seriously. I think it's early uh, inspiring, maybe. I don't know. You tell me if it's inspiring. I think it's inspiring, especially if we think of it also as mythic. Uh, that... that uh, the possibility that the human heart could achieve such saintliness that it wouldn't be stirred to anger ever. I think it gets stirred to anger, but mostly we don't do it. My, my favorite quote from the Dalai Lama about that was um, a, a remark he made in Irvine the very year he got the uh, Nobel Prize, or whatever year that was, because I was in Irvine, where, and he was there at a conference when they were announcing the Nobel Prizes for that year. So suddenly it was a great excitement, because not only had the Dalai Lama gotten the Nobel Prize, but he was there in Irvine at this big conference. And he gave a talk in the Irvine uh, University Auditorium, 6,000 people sitting there, and he's sitting alone on the stage, taking questions from 6,000 people, you know, pointing, and people got up and asked questions. Quite amazing. Anyway, someone got up and said, do you ever get angry? And in his uh, inimitable way, he laughed. He, you know, he, you know, it's a wonderful little laugh. <laughs> so he did that little laugh. He said, hey. he said, yes. He said, <laughs> he said, of course. He said, things don't go the way that you wanted them to. Anger arises, but it's not a problem. <laughs> because you realize that the not a problem is it's not a problem for anger to arise. It just arises, and you're aware of it, and then you do what you need to do. But you don't do it, increasing the suffering with more violence. The, the recognition that anger arises I, I collected two cartoons. You know that I like cartoons a lot. I couldn't find them, so I had to get them off the uh, internet yesterday by uh, corresponding with uh, the web page of the New Yorker. Do you know the web page of the New Yorker? If you get on the web and get the New Yorker, and then you get on to the cartoon bank, it will say, what is the topic of this cartoon? So all you have to do is remember what it's about. And you type in uh, Viking. That was the first one we did. So I remembered this cartoon. I'll pass it around if you want, because it's quite small. But uh, I, all I printed in was Viking. Their description 
is uh, Viking Warrior stands atop Winner's Platform. You can see it's one of those podiums like at the Olympics with three winners, either first place, second place, third place. But uh, you see this Viking standing here in a Viking costume. He's got a sword and a spear. And as you can see close up, you can see that the sword and the spear are dripping blood. And there's no one in second and third place. <laughs> so, uh, uh, actually, we took this out because my, my, uh, my daughter married a Swede, so we like Viking jokes. My, my son-in-law is an extremely mild-mannered man, but we like Viking jokes. Um, but I think the reason that people laugh at this is the cartoon without words is it recognizes that we have that impulse here. Yeah, this is a nicer one to pass around. This one I put up on the bulletin board for a while last year. I had to, re I had to again do a winner's platform. And uh, you'll notice if you, as this comes around that, uh, you know how everybody stands on the winner's platform? This has three people standing on the winner's platform, like on an Olympics. And you always they stand there and they play the three national anthems and everybody stands with their medals and they all look so patriotic and misty-eyed and wonderful and and uh, they all look like they have such good uh, um, what what would you call it uh, spirit of um, what do you call it uh, sportsman-like spirit good sportsman this particular one. Uh, bronze medalist punches gold medalist as they stand together in the competition. So you can see the bronze medalist is just hauled off and hit the first place gold medalist. So the reason it's a, you know, that we laugh at that is that that's what we feel like doing. You know, the, the bronze medalist who has just spent four years of his life in the pool killing himself has just lost by two hundredths of a second, he doesn't feel good about it. He actually would like to haul off and hit this other people, person, but he doesn't do it. The thing, uh, one of the lines are about, um, the, if you think about the first precept, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. It's really all the five precepts together that one. They take the precept to abstain from harming living beings. We have that precept, I think, in recognition of the fact that part of our normal neurology is that when we are frightened by other human beings or jealous of them, we feel like harming them in some way. It comes up. It just does. We wish we had what they had or we... Uh, we're upset that they hurt us in some way. And when we're a child, we just take it back or hit or cry. Um, and when we're an adult, we have to stop doing that. It's too small of a planet to hit. To do something else. We have to overcome what we feel like doing and do something that works better. To make amends in some way. I, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've been so struck by Alan Jones's uh, uh, saying we have to go to other people's places and um, 
somehow champion the other person's cause. Today is the 28th death anniversary of Abraham Joshua Heschel. That was the email that I got, because I knew it was today or tomorrow. I couldn't remember which one it was, so this morning I checked my email. There on somebody's list, sir, sure enough. And uh, I, I didn't know this about him, that in 1971 he was honorary chairman of Trees for Vietnam, a campaign that sent money to the Vietnamese to replant trees that were being deliberately destroyed by the U.S. government in its war against Vietnam. He was committing an act of nonviolent civil disobedience on behalf of life and peace. So I think that that really is the, the, the key phrase, committing an act of nonviolent civil disobedience. <coughs> nonviolent activism is what we have to do. I keep thinking about myself. In the, in the 60s, um, in the 60s, in the time of Vietnam, I, I, I think I was a nonviolent activist. I think I'm on the web of uh, uh, films the government has for people who marched in Market Street and people who marched in Mill Valley. And, um, I was at the time, for a while, the president of the Marin County Mothers for Peace. I was marching with babies and baby buggies at the time. And then I would have said, in uh, decades following that, I think, that I'm not so much of an activist on the outside anymore, that I'm an activist more in terms of uh, teaching people how to watch the impulses of their own heart and dealing with the impulses of my own heart. And hopeful that if I really could learn and communicate to other people really paying attention to what are the impulses of their heart, that that would be the same as manning the battlements on the outside. I'm not sure that that isn't called for from me. I don't know about anybody else. As we enter into this new year, is somehow taking more of a stand on the outside than I have. Maybe it's time to do that, new time of life. Um, been experimenting with this kaffir. You remember it's uh, Jack's kaffir? You see him wearing it in the last couple of... Uh, he, he uh, I'm not sure where he got it. I think he got it from his Palestinian friend with whom he's been teaching. And he's been wearing it since 9-11. Uh, and uh, wearing it when uh, immediately there became some little acts of... Uh, hostility against Muslims in Marin County. And so he, he began wearing it. He said, I'm not wearing it on my head. He said, I'm wearing it around. He said, but even so, I wear it in the supermarket, and people look at me and wonder about it. Um, there was one woman here on retreat, not uh, a Muslim woman, wearing a kafir for a while, not on her head, just around like this. Um, there was an email that went out from uh, Susanna Heschel, who teaches at Dartmouth, the daughter of 
Joshua Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, saying that she was going to cover her head in uh, solidarity with Muslim women after that event. There was a, there was a notice, uh, in fact, from me on the Spirit Rock webpage uh, about covering the head on that same day that Janet Heschel put out. I think there are things that we have to start to say out. I have to say, I'm going to say that only in the first person. I have to say out more things this year. I have to show up more places and say out more things. This came in the mail uh, two days ago. There's another way of saying out. I thought I would wear it with the kafia, lest people be worried about my patriotism. It happens to come uh, in red, white, and blue. Do you recognize what this is? Do you know what it is? It's a breast cancer. It's a breast cancer awareness pin, which you send away for. I, I uh, wondered about it because, on the one hand, I did pay for it, and I wanted to make a statement about uh, non-consumerism, and it's a little bit of consumerism, and I did buy it. Um, from an advertiser on a web page, but it's the web page of the uh, breast cancer site. And if you click on there every day, and you click a certain place on that site, a certain amount of money gets set aside to pay for mammograms for poor women. And so the rule that I have now for myself before answering the email or reading it you turn on the computer, and you click on the hunger site. And then you click a place on the hunger site, and it says, thank you very much, a third of a cup of rice is being donated today by one of the following places. And then you can stay there and see that L.L. Bean and The Gap and a few other places have given that cup of rice somewhere. Or you can get right off, take Ten seconds to give you a third of a cup of rice, and then on that web page you push another place, and then you go to the bottom of the page. I can for the breast cancer and for the rainforest, and you do both of them. So the whole thing takes one minute in and out. So it's kind of a religious rule of mine that before you read the the email, you make your donation to the breast cancer and to the rainforest and to the hunger site. And then it said if you sent away some amount of money, uh, they would con- you'd get one of these breast cancer awareness things. And I thought, well, I'll do that too. And if part of that gets donated to a mammogram. So it's a, it's a sense I have that um, that maybe Dharma at this point is coming. I think it's done it already, but for me, I really need to make more manifest the fact that the Dharma practice is connected to what we do in the world and that we have to advertise it. I have to advertise it in some way. I have to go to the bank in some way that people notice, I see you wearing a kaffir, why is that? I see you have a pin on, why is that? That if people if they don't ask me, I won't tell them. But if they do ask me, I will. That uh, 
somehow I think we're called upon to be preachers, and I am called upon to do this in the I, so we are I, I. Uh, I am called upon to be uh, more of a preacher in this in this new year, so that it is more civil than it used to be. Why, yeah. Okay, so that in the last 15 minutes of today, remember last week when we had in the last 15 minutes people met in small groups? In the last 15 minutes of today, I'm convinced we can do that. We will have uh, 10 small groups, uh, 108 divided by what? What's 108 divisible by? 12. Nine groups of 12. Or 12 groups of nine, nine groups of 12. We don't have 108 people. Mm -hmm. We just have to work it out. Everybody in their group will make 10. We'll all give them to Shelly, who will put them, Sherry, Sherry, who will put them on our email list. So you'll all get the list of 108 things that you could do. That's a great idea. Imagine that if we did 108 ways to make manifest our intention to have a new world happen. Um, I want to go back to why it's so hard to overcome those impulses of the heart. There has to be a, a, a place to stand that on. I want to teach a little Buddha Dharma about it. But Miriam, what? Well, I was thinking that on, on October 8th, um, I was flying from San Francisco to Berlin. And um, I think the United States bombed Afghanistan on October 7th. And I also got that email that we should cover our heads uh, in, in, you know, a sisterhood or whatever with the Afghanistan women. And so I did that. And I was in the San Francisco airport with a head covering, and I was felt very, very self-conscious. Mm -hmm. It was a very um, difficult thing to do because I had a lot of anxiety about flying on that day. And um, yet I, I really felt so committed to this that I was able to, able to kind of overcome all of my discomfort, and yet I really felt like I was calling a lot of attention to myself. It was a very strange experience, and mm -hmm. saying that if we do some of these things, sometimes it's more difficult for some people to do certain things than others. Mm -hmm. But um, I was very committed to that and, um, uh, and did that throughout the whole plane trip from mm -hmm. San Francisco to Frankfurt and then arrived in Frankfurt with a head covering. Mm -hmm. So it was um, a, a challenge. I actually think it, it, it's an enormous challenge for me to ever get through that. But, and for myself, I am interested in challenging myself. I, I will have to deal with fear and with a certain amount of discomfort and with a certain amount of explanation. But at, at this point, I, I have a sense that that's really part of my own practice. It, my practice otherwise is easy. This is the most... You want to think about jobs? Do I not have the plum job in the world? I do. I mean, I have friends who have been teaching Dharma in, in Medellin, and friends who have been teaching Dharma in Uzbekistan, and friends who have been sleeping on the floor of... of, of, of 
uh, train stations in um, remote places in Mongolia because there are universities that they want to have the people come and teach Dharma. And I, I, I think to myself, I'm so happy that my friends are doing that because it relieves me of the burden of feeling that I have to do that. And I've, 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 you know, if you've been here long enough, you know I've joked about that. I don't have to do that because so-and-so will do it. Well, at this point, I think so-and-so won't do it. I have to do it. And I have to do it because I think it's a doable thing. You want to hear the Buddha on that? This is so inspiring. He says, where, did I, where was that piece that I just read you about? That you could give that up. Wait, wait, wait. I've lost that wonderful part. Uh, right? We'll find it. This is about what's wholesome and what's not wholesome. Um, so he's just said what's not wholesome. Here we go. First of all, it says, the Buddha understood well the psychology of strength, which basically has not changed through the millennia. All wrongful acts from killing down are committed out of lust for power, the enjoyment of power, the wish to secure it, the drive to expand it. This power craze, of course, is an obsessive delusion intricately bound up with authority. It threatens to overcome all those who exercise authority over others, from the old-style monarchs to the modern dictator. Even the petty bureaucrat does not escape. He too delights, or she, really, really, delights in wielding his or her own power, share of power and displaying his or her own stamp of authority. But then... Here in the commentary, it's talking about what the Buddha said. He said, abandon what is unwholesome, O monks. Uh, Jack reads that always as O friends, but the truth is it says O monks. Mm -hmm. Abandon what is unwholesome, O monks. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O monks. One can discover the wholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I wouldn't ask you to cultivate it. But since it is possible, and it does bring benefit, happiness and happiness there therefore I say cultivate what is hopeful what is wholesome these hope inspiring words of the Buddha about man's people's humans positive potential will be grasped if we remember the words wholesome and whole unwholesome are not limited to a narrow moral application the wholesome that can be cultivated comprises everything beneficial, including those qualities of mind and heart 
which are indispensable for reaching the highest goal of final liberation. Do you know what that means? That's probably the most important sentence I've said all morning. Do you know that you want to hear it again? Okay. So he said, abandon what's unwholesome. I wouldn't ask you to do it if it wasn't feasible, but it is feasible. Then it says, but listen, you have to know what it means, wholesome and unwholesome. It doesn't, they're not limited to a narrow moral application. Not just, okay, that, you get what that means. The wholesome that can be cultivated comprises everything beneficial, everything beneficial, including those qualities of mind and heart which are indispensable for reaching the highest goal of final liberation. So, okay, here, now you teach each other. What are those benefits, what are those qualities of mind and heart that are indispensable for reaching those highest goals. I have two in mind, there are probably more. What are those? What qualities of mind and heart? Kindness, openness, compassion, hmm? faith, effort, unconditional love, what else? Joy at others' well-being. Everybody was laughing who was here at 7.30 this morning because we had a discussion about Mudita. Joy at others' well-being. Do you pass around those cartoons about, you know, that we have this very desire to win at all costs? We sometimes have a little problem with joy at other people's well-being. Like, it's all right that they should have the well-being, but I could have a little bit of it too, you know, that... Uh, the kind of a thing where you see on TV someone has just won the lottery and you find yourself thinking, what if someone, uh, uh, whoever it is, Ed McMahon rang your doorbell and said, here, it's a million dollars, you know, what would you do with it? Do you ever find yourself thinking that? You know, other people won the California lottery, well, you know, what would I do with it? Um, <laughs> I, you know, I certainly thought that, what would I do with it? Well, I'd certainly give it, you know, all away to the best causes. But maybe before I did that, I'd just do this, 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 and this. You know, it, it, it really, I'd give most of it away, 95% of it away. But first, uh, generosity. So mostly we're naming the parameters, right? Okay. The perfections of the heart. Generosity, morality, uh, renunciation, uh, wisdom, energy, patience, determination, truthfulness, uh, loving kindness, and equanimity, uh, the perfections of the heart. That would be a good place to start. Uh, wisdom, which is really the root of all of them, really when you see Everybody is just what they are because of what's happened to them. Everyone is the fruit of the karma of all creation, which doesn't mean everybody is to be extolled or everybody is to be um, admired. It means that everybody in some way to be forgiven. They can't be otherwise. Sometimes we have to do some very strong things to restrain people who can't be otherwise who are doing bad things. Right? 
No, no, actually, justice is different. Uh, what did you say about justice and violence? Justice and non-violence. I think you can do justice. I think you can do very firm justice. There's no problem about justice. Uh, there's no problem in, 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 in Buddhist uh, theory about taking strong measures to restrain people who are doing things that are not for the benefit of all beings. There's actually a, a, a story, it's one of the uh, stories of the Buddha in a previous lifetime, so of course, who knows, it's part of the mythology or part of the cosmology, however you want to see that, where in the lifetime, one of the lifetimes of the human being, and before he was uh, in the lifetime of Siddhartha Gautama, where he presumably had his great opening of understanding and became known as the Buddha. He was, uh, in uh, children's stories at least, uh, had many lifetimes where he perfected those perfections of the heart, where he worked on them, where he was an animal. So he'd be this uh, a very compassionate parrot, or a wonderfully patient buffalo. Or they're great stories. They're out in the bookstore. They're very nice for children. Um, buffalo that never loses his temper out of wisdom for understanding that the, the whoever is irritating him can't do otherwise. And then part of the Jataka stories is that in a previous lifetime, as a human being, the Buddha actually murdered somebody where he was in a previous lifetime as a sea captain of a, of a vessel at sea with 500 people on this great ferry, and someone, some terrible murderer, was about to, uh, uh, I don't know, in some way sink the ship. I'm not sure how they would have done it, the technology. But anyway, that's the story. And it said in his, um, in his great compassion to save this murderer, the uh, suffering of the endless karma that he would suffer from being responsible for having killed so many human beings. He killed him. So there is a story. Now, who knows if, you know, it's a story. But it makes the point that the, the point is not the action. The point is the state of the heart in the doing it. That you can do all kinds of things if you do them out of a place of good intention heart. So it's not a, po it doesn't take a, doesn't take a stand against self-defense, doesn't even take a stand against war, really. Uh, although one of the very prominent Buddhist stories is about King Ashoka, who actually did live in India some centuries after the Buddha. Now, this story is maybe mythic, maybe true, but uh, it is true that King Ashoka transformed his whole kingdom into uh, the practice of Buddhism. But the story that goes with it is he was walking in a battlefield on the day after a huge battle in which he'd won some great amount of territory and saw all these dead bodies on the field and uh, was so overcome with uh, the horror of how much carnage there was and then saw a monk 
walking along and uh, intuited that that monk had somehow cultivated a peaceful heart and that somehow that peaceful heart would prevent the monk from doing a thing like that and that he felt a lot of pain in that moment about having been responsible either out of lust or anger for being part of that war. So he was transformed to a peaceful way and he transformed his whole kingdom. So that actually seems to have some historical truth. There seems to have been on King Ashoka. Who knows if that's the moment of his transformation, but it makes a point about a moment of transformation. I want to say about two things that I think contribute to a peaceful heart. Three, I think. One is, uh, one is experiencing, uh, remember we were talking about the moral inventory and karma cleaning? <coughs> so there's a, there's a phrase that uh, the Buddha used to talk about how good you feel when you feel the bliss of blamelessness when you know that you really haven't got any outstanding moral debts. Feel good about yourself, don't you? Feel good about yourself. My grandfather was dying. He said, you know, when I die, there's not going to be anybody who's going to say anything bad about me. He felt good about that. He said, I didn't do anything that anybody will say anything bad about me. You feel good if no one else will say bad about you and if you don't say bad about me. So that was one. The other thing is the awareness that um, we're human beings. We have these impulses. That's why I brought you those two cartoons from the New Yorker. That lust and greed and the desire for power and the desire to win is part of what we have. But we don't have to act on it. And the other, which is quite the other side of it, but I think equally important, we have to be able to see What's the nature of the human mind and heart and that we can overcome it? But we also have to be really uplifted enough by the awareness of uh, how magic it is to be in a life. Alan was saying it this morning in the early class. He said, you know, get a sense of the preciousness of the human birth and the possibility of uh, how rare it is. not only a human birth is rare, but the fact that you got born as you is the only time in the history of the world that that's ever going to happen. There'll be more human beings born after us, but never another you. And you think about that. That's really amazing. But in, in fact, it's a good way to uh, move so we can have some time for you to make the blessings part, 108. Uh, because we could end um, well with two things. I'll read you some. I'll read you this. This is part of the amazement of being alive. While I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shapes of all shapes as they must live, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being, and I saw that it was holy. Can I hear that again? Mm-hmm. While I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit and the shape of all things as they must live together like one being, and I saw that it was holy. So, 
not grasping again. Who do you think said that? Not Heschel, but it could have been. It was the radical amazement of Heschel. It could have been, but it wasn't. Try again. Not the Buddha, but it might have been. Because he actually, according to what they say, could see on all kinds of levels through what we see as the obvious level of being. Merton is a good guess, but... <laughs> okay, black elk. All right. Now, uh, the reason I'm happy to bring that and the reason I'm happy that we could guess Merton and the Buddha and Heschel is that I think that everybody who sees, sees that it's amazing that we're in a life. It's amazing that we're here. It's amazing that we're each of us us. That somehow being in connection with that amazement makes it possible to stay in connection with the suffering and really, at least for me, inspires the commitment to do something about that suffering. To change the story. So, we have eight minutes. It should be like a... We have seven minutes to do this. Let's count numbers. Uh, uh, we're starting here. We're going to do one, two, three, four, five. Here you go. Starting here. One. Two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. Uh, well, we're going to have a right here. There's five. There's five groups. Okay. Go. Hey, Beth. Two. It's a game, it's a contest, be sure.